Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Before we begin, I want to confess that we've been doing systematic theology all along. If you've listened to the first three courses, Bible, History, Ethics, uh, I expect, or rather I hope, that you would say you've learned a great deal about Christian faith and belief already. Faith and belief. In other words, systematic theology. The discipline is made plain in the name, a systematic approach to theology. That means understanding how ideas about our religion work, how ideas are organized, how that organization developed, and how one aspect of the faith fits with other aspects of the faith. It's an attempt to make sense of faith and make it sensible to each generation. And it always reflects changes in thought over time. I want to leap right in by telling you about A Song of Faith, the most recent faith statement adopted by the United Church of Canada. It was created at the request of the 2000 General Council meeting in Toronto, and it was developed, vetted, and submitted in time for the 2006 General Council in Thunder Bay. There, it was approved and commended for use in the Church. As the preamble states, the statement is meant to be a timely and contextual statement of faith, and one that engages the church in conversation on the nature of the church, we call that ecclesiology, ministry, and sacraments. In other words, systematic theology. Whenever we discuss the nature of the church, or ministry, or the sacraments, we need to understand how these things came to be, how they have changed over time, and how they reflect our current understanding of God. The format for our look at systematics will not be strictly Trinitarian, to the great relief of some and the consternation of others. We'll spend more time on the first person of the Trinity in this episode, but that doesn't mean God won't come up again. The mystery of the Trinity, God in three persons, uh, means that we will never stop talking about God, even as we talk about the other aspects of faith we discuss. The final thing I'll say before we finally get past the final thing I'll say is that this is difficult stuff. Let me give you, uh, for instance, the most uh, challenging continuing education course I took through my 31 years was called the Ministry of Supervision. It's a course that involves taking a group of ministers aside for 10 days and teaching them how to supervise ministers in training. The core of the course was mock supervision, ministers supervising other ministers and asking questions like, how is God present to you in the ministry situation you describe? What you imagine would be second nature to us clergy was really quite difficult. It took most of us a few tries to get to the point where we could have a meaningful conversation about God's presence in the struggles and situations described. It's difficult stuff. And in the spirit of that difficulty, uh, my first question, what is God like? Pause the tape here if you wish. Here's a partial answer from the Song of Faith statement. God is holy mystery, 
beyond complete knowledge, above perfect description. The song begins by acknowledging what St. Paul told the church at Corinth, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am fully known. For you original language fans, the Greek says, We see in a mirror an enigma. Even when you collect the wisdom of the ages, Scripture, Church Fathers and Mothers, the Creeds, the Great Councils of the Church, the Reformers, the rise of theology as an academic discipline, all these things, you still have an incomplete understanding of God. And to take this a step further, consider St. Augustine, a doctor of the Church, and perhaps second only to St. Paul in influence, who said, if you think you understand God, it is not God. This mirrors a wonderful Buddhist saying, uh, if you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha. The Zen master, who came up with this riddle, meant that if you think you've met the Buddha on the way, enlightenment, then think again. If you think you have it, you don't. The Tao Te Ching says the same. The Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Luckily for us, and for the three episodes we've set aside for systematics, Paul has an answer for Augustine and all the other thinkers who see through a glass darkly. In Colossians, Paul declares, Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. In other words, if you want to understand God, look to Jesus. Following our Trinitarian assumption, everything you can say about Jesus the Christ, you should also be able to say about God. Seeking relationship, reconciling himself to the world, seeking harmony among all things. These points come from the beginning of A Song of Faith, but again, they could come from Paul, who said, In all things God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. If you want to understand God, look to Jesus. So, a question. What is it about Jesus that most embodies God, in your opinion? Take a moment, if you wish. If we want to begin at the beginning, uh, we turn to the scholar Linwood Urban, who, in my opinion, wrote perhaps the best single-volume summary of Christian theology. In his book, A Short History of Christian Thought, Urban begins with scriptural sources to understand God. Christianity emerges from Judaism, and Jesus' experience of the Jewish faith had a profound impact on the way we understand God. He takes Jesus' Jewish faith and looks at it under five headings. One, God is the Lord of all things. Two, God made a covenant with Israel. Three, God gave Israel the law. Four, God held Israel to account. And five, God has a future for Israel. So we'll take them one by one. God is the Lord of all things. The Shema expresses the core of this belief. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
God is the Lord of all that is, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one true God. Urban cites Psalm 145, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Next, God made a covenant with Israel. God seeks relationship through covenant. The people pledge their love and obedience, and God promises protection. Urban points to the Exodus as a paradigm covenant event. The people cry out for salvation. God hears the innocent suffering of the people, and God acts in history to rescue them. Next, God gave Israel the law. God gives the law not as a burden, but as a gift. Urban points to Psalm 19 to express the importance of the law to Israel. It reads, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the stupid. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law brings joy to those wise enough to follow it, and if you are not wise, simply following it will make you wise. Next, God held Israel to account, meaning God judges Israel. Through the prophets, through those anointed to speak for God, God condemns Israel for failing to keep the law, keeping idols, refusing to care for widow, orphan, and alien, and generally turning away from God. Yet even in the face of God's utter disappointment, Israel receives comfort. You could read Isaiah 40 as an example. Finally, God has a future for Israel. So in the face of exile and despair, God promises to send a Messiah, a new hope for a new age, perhaps a new Moses to liberate the people once more, or a new king in the line of King David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse found in Isaiah 11. God will never abandon Israel. I want to shift now to what I'm calling God according to Jesus. I don't want to do next week's work this week, the second person of the Trinity. Rather, I want to allow Jesus to tell us in his own words what God is like. I'll add these passages to the website at p2.ca slash podcast. Simply uh, hit the tab that says episodes. Beginning with Matthew 5. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Again, Matthew 6. So do not worry, saying, What shall I eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. From Matthew 10 again, But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
from Luke 6. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And finally, Luke 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Jesus is concerned with righteousness, encouraging his followers to be perfect as God is perfect, merciful as God is merciful. He wants us to remember that we are fully known, what we need and who we are. And Jesus wants us to prepare for times of trouble, trusting that God will give us the words to speak. And that's from just six short passages. Our final section is to look at God constructed through the ages, and in particular, three ideas about God. The first one, uh, God is omnipotent. Next, God is omniscient. And God is omnipresent. Having looked at the Jewish view of God in Jesus' day, as well as Jesus' view of God, we now confront the question, what is God like according to traditional theological thought? Down through the ages, from Irenaeus to Augustine to Aquinas to the Reformers, entire lives and entire libraries have been filled with answering the question, what is God like? Three Believes pondered over the centuries, have entered the popular consciousness. The idea that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent seems to go unchallenged until people reach the point of unbelief. For many, rejecting these three ideas means rejecting God. And I would disagree. They have roots in Scripture, and they have the force of tradition, but they cannot be proven with certainty. Remember Augustine, uh, if you think you understand God, it is not God. Nevertheless, uh, let's take a look. Omnipotence is the power of God to affect whatever is not intrinsically impossible. That's the Catholic Encyclopedia's view. So God is all-powerful, the theologians agree, but cannot do the impossible. So, for example, uh, God cannot act against what God has decreed, such as destroying humanity. Another example would be to act in contradiction to God's own plan, uh, such as granting infinite life. Creatures are finite, perishable, and God cannot contradict God's own plan. St. Thomas Aquinas argued that it would be impossible for God to sin because God cannot fail or fall short of what God intends to do, being perfect. So omniscience stems from God's perfection. God has perfect knowledge, according to the scholars, knowing everything that can be known, both internal to the divine and regarding humanity. How we can have true free will, yet fall under the realm of God's infinite knowledge, is a point of contention between scholars and, ultimately, a mystery. When scholars speak of God's omnipresence, they describe it as God's immensity and ubiquity. 
God is in all things and over all things. God is imminent uh, within us and transcendent above us all at once. God is omnipresent by nature, not simply as a characteristic of operating in a particular way. Scholars at this point tend to caution against pantheism, the idea that God and the world are one. In other words, God is in the rock, but the rock is not God. Clearly, these three aspects of God are not purely biblical, although they find root in the scriptures. The same discussion the scholars have engaged in from the first century continued after the Reformation with the shift in emphasis away from anything that was expressly non-biblical. Also, there was a shift away from the weight of tradition, although the reformers were quick to point to the creeds and the work of the theologians they agreed with, such as St. Augustine. In other words, if you have difficulty with these three ideas, take heart, you are not alone. Uh, If you think you understand God, it is not God. Okay, that was a, a lot to take in. I'm going to leave off here and encourage you to join me next time for a deeper look at Jesus. Once again, thank you for joining me.